Are you ready for me to give my intro? All right, welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right, John, it's your turn. You picked another weird one. Yeah. Why don't you tell us what you picked? Uh, I picked an H.G. Wells story. It's called The Country of the Blind. All right, you got a section for us? Uh, yes. When at last, after much shouting and wrath, Nunez crossed the stream by a little bridge, came through a gate in the wall, and approached them. He was sure that they were blind. He was sure that this was the country of the blind of which the legends told. Conviction had sprung upon him, and a sense of great and rather enviable adventure. The three stood side by side, not looking at him, but with their ears directed towards him, judging him by his unfamiliar steps. They stood close together like men a little afraid, and he could see their eyelids closed and sunken, as though the very balls beneath had shrunk away. There was an expression near awe on their faces. A man, one said, in hardly recognizable Spanish. A man it is, a man or a spirit, coming down from the rocks. But Nunez advanced with the confident steps of a youth who enters upon life. All the old stories of the lost valley and the country of the blind had come back to his mind, and through his thoughts ran this old proverb, as if it were a refrain. In the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And very civilly, he gave them greeting. He talked to them and used his eyes. Where does he come from, Brother Pedro? Asked one. Down out of the rocks. Over the mountains I come, said Nunez. Out of the country beyond there, where men can see. From near Bogota, where there are a hundred thousand people, and where the city passes out of sight. Sight? muttered Pedro. Sight? He comes, said the second blind man, out of the rocks. The cloth of their coats Nunez saw was curiously fashioned, each with a different sort of stitching. They startled him by a simultaneous movement towards him, each with a hand outstretched. He stepped back from the advance of these spread fingers. Come hither, said the third blind man, following his motion and clutching him neatly. And they held Nunez and felt him over, saying no word further until they had done so. Carefully, he cried with a finger in his eye, and found they thought that organ, with its fluttering lids, a queer thing in him. I want to hear like a little bit about like why you picked this, how you found it, if you had read it before, or if you just like do what you normally do and remembered it from something or an anthology. I read this a million, like uh, 30 or more years ago when I was a kid and uh, I only read it that one time, but it made an impression on me. I remembered it. I read it, read it from this very book that I have now still, um, which has like the time machine and um, a couple of other stories, the empire of the ants and the man who could work miracles. And uh, it just made an impression. So when I was thinking about, stories i was thinking oh i should bring in some hg wells there's an author that came to mind and so i was trying to figure out which story to suggest and that's the one that came to mind so i was like all right i'll do that one so you remembered it from reading it as a kid yeah that's crazy so what do you like about it? The thing that always stuck with me was the way it undermines that, that refrain that he says the in the kingdom of the blind or in the country of the blind, the man with one eye is king. You know, by the ending, it's demonstrated that it's not true. And that's the mm-hmm. thing that, you know, most people probably remember of the story. But that's the thing that always stuck with me when I was a kid. It reminded me of like two stories, one being the Omelas one. Oh, yeah. Omelas. Omelas. Because you're dealing with almost a similar storytelling. That one I remember being like really circular where they were kind of revisiting the same themes over and over. But it felt like this higher level storytelling, right? From a very removed narrator who's giving you the lay of the land. Mm -hmm. And this felt that way too. Plus the people in both of them are otherworldly in a lot of ways. 
not just foreign or new. Yeah. So it has that sci-fi element to it or fantasy element to it. So I, I was thinking of that one while I read. And then this came to me later. And especially in the section that you just read. I don't know what this is. I didn't have time to look it up. But that like fable, maybe you'd call it, where 10 different blind people are touching an elephant and all describing what they feel. And they're all completely wrong. <laughs> So, you know, one person's like touching the tail and says like it's a broom or something. I don't know. I'm butchering this, but none of them has the full picture. And in that story, you know, there's some takeaway, some lesson. And in this one, too, it felt like this was more of a fable with a takeaway than like a story you're actually supposed to enjoy for the fact that it's about a world of blind people. You know what I mean? I think what did that for me was the intro, this intro that I hate. (laughs) And uh, is definitely like a device of its time where everybody felt like the need to clear their throat and say, I'm going to tell you a story now. Well, I think this specifically, the the way this intro unfurls is in the um, basically the the utopian tradition. So, you know, like uh, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis or uh, Thomas More's Utopia. They always, these stories, and even something like Gulliver's Travels, which Mm. is kind of already like a satire that uses that formulation. They use the uh, device of, it's a real place somewhere out there far far away and then the the way the story starts is we traveled and we found this island or we found this land or we found this valley and these are the specifics and i feel like the more specifics they could pile on top of it it let it a, an air of legitimacy you know like if i can make this as concrete sounding as possible then people will believe it's true and then you, you right. build the, uh, the utopian vision on top of that and this this read just like that you know there's even um in the beginning he talks about he's telling the story or they're telling like how, of where this country of the blind came from. And then, so the, the Nunez who finds the, the land falls down a mountain and lands in the valley. And the, the narration says, the story of the accident has been written a dozen times. Pointer's narrative is the best. He tells how the party worked their difficult and almost vertical way. He's kind of trying to insert it into a literary tradition that doesn't exist, you know, which is, you know, part of that conceit of how you construct these stories. The guy also slips into first person yeah once once one time in the entire thing (laughs) and it pissed me off (laughs) i always talk about journalists that will write stories that are going great they're long form their narrative and then they'll slip in a couple references of first person that just are completely unnecessary for their overall takeaway just like proving that they're like physically there this is obviously a different use of that but it's similarly jarring yeah I mean, this comes from, you know, again, he's writing writing in like basically 1900 and the way narration was treated, you know, even the the epics like uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, they start off with the Rhapsodist calling to the muses in the first person. And then after the muses like enter him and tell him like are projecting the story through him, he slips into the third person. But, you know, he comes back to that first person here and there throughout it. So it's just like kind of reminding you that the narrator is an embodied person. I think it does nothing more than that (laughs) well right it's only jarring in the sense that you don't need that and then when you have it it made me reevaluate what i had read up until that point and then i started reading everything differently waiting for that person to come back and then they didn't i get the effect but i'm all i'm always annoyed 
our sensibilities for reading have changed so much in the past century. Kind yes. of amazing. Yeah. And you would know that better than I would, except that I bristle at all of these types of stories. I keep thinking <laughs> about right. the frog, the jumping frog of Calvers County and how much I hated that story and hope that it burns. <laughs> Oh, I just, man. I just have no, I know I have like no patience for this type of storytelling and that's probably me personally, but also of the time. And I do this a lot. I know. And I'm sure some people don't like the comparison, but with a story like this, the fact that we didn't revisit that narrative tone at the end, we didn't come back to that narrator. He didn't offer some kind of summation that made the intro in my interpretation necessary. I just kept thinking how much more exciting this story would have have been had it launched into the story itself from the beginning and i know that it would change it wildly especially for what like you pointed out it's trying to do to kind of make it appear to be like this real place or to to be similar to these other types of storytelling of the time or you know before it but I think it would have been a really neat reading experience for us to have discovered that these folks were blind when Nunez did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It could have even been told in the same tone of voice and all of that, with the same type of sentence construction, and it could still have felt of its time in a way or of a different time. Yeah, I think you could take the latter half of it more or less intact and just that would be a compelling story is just his discovery of this this valley rather than all the, the lead up, like you say. I don't even think you have to change very, like a word here and there maybe yeah. but i think it'd be right. it'd be compelling as is yeah i mean because the other factor at play here is that he knows of this world and oh yeah he has a revelation that he stumbled upon this world in particular when he realizes that they're all blind so he could have been our narrative guide either way he could have been like you know crash landed on this planet what the heck's going on wait a second they're all blind oh yeah i found right. the country of the blind which he does anyway because then he you know your favorite part of this is the chant that he remembers and we could have gotten all that i know that's like not the point it's just i also know that <laughs> had mr wells brought this into my fiction workshop i would have been like listen buddy <laughs> it's great but uh i'm gonna take a hacksaw to it <laughs> it's so funny because you know hg wells is um credited with well jules jules verne was writing science fiction before but hg wells like basically invented uh science fantasy because mm -hmm. he um took science fiction and did uh more fantastical elements with it so as an inventor of an entire genre you know it's funny to how would we workshop this <laughs> you know? i know it's terrible but it's appropriate for what we're because we're looking at it as from a different perspective yeah you know what can we learn from this and i think if somebody brought in a story today that was written this way i would not critique it by saying i think you should hack this up i would probably critique it by saying i see that you're trying to mimic some older story like an older storytelling but you know what i mean it would be sort of meta because it's yeah. it's a recognizable approach it's just if you want me to like it and i fancy myself like a pretty good barometer for what people like these days this isn't it the intro yeah i think if you're gonna have this kind of narration then you have to like the way that narration and modern expectations is interesting is usually voice it has to have a yeah. really compelling voice i'm um, not like textbook voice where it's boring to read, but some voice that you're like, oh, who's this narrator? That, that'll drive yeah. interest. Okay, so I have a stupid question, which you can edit or leave in. I don't care. Uh, before <laughs> we get to my next point, which is not about the intro, but um, I know the chant is about the one-eyed man. He has both his eyes. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. So this goes into my next point. The whole time I'm reading this pretty early on, actually, I'm reading it as, you know, a cautionary tale of Christian on Christian missionaries or something. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a way you could read it. Absolutely. Yeah. And maybe not even Christian missionaries in particular, but this idea that anyone that enters a society that operates differently than their own can easily find flaws that make it seem inferior. And especially if you give someone what is widely accepted in the rest of the world that you're familiar with. With a disability, they're going to go into it and say, you know, these people could be so much better off if I could only help them do these things. And in this situation, he knows in a sense that he is unable to provide them the gift of sight, right? Just like such a metaphor, but he can do his best to explain that they are different and convince them that they're at a disadvantage, which he fails to do. And then he can also hope to, through that, demonstrate that he's somehow superior and then do what this chant has been saying, which is lead them. And I think what's interesting about that chant is that we know throughout that he is seeing, he has both his eyes because when they, at the end, spoiler, try to give him a surgery to make him blind because they think that his like protruding physical eyeballs, which none of them have at this point, are what's making him crazy. (laughs) Not that he's crazy just that he sounds like a weirdo when he tries to explain sight so we know that he has both his eyes he's not the one-eyed ruler i think the one-eyed ruler is a metaphor in keeping with my whole metaphor here of the idea that you know you can have a foot in both of these worlds right if you want to rule a people like this you might be able to see metaphorically out of one eye that your world works but you have to appreciate how theirs works in order to like curry any kind of favor he goes in there with both eyes so he doesn't appreciate what it's like to be blind. He doesn't appreciate what it's like to live like them in any sense. And he just goes in there with, you know, thinking his way is best. Um, so I don't think he could have ever been that ruler. There's no really like mention of that being correct as a way to read that. But that's what I kept thinking. I was like, and then there's also not the way this ends. He decides to leave the world when he, in the final hour, realizes he's going to lose his sight, but he loves seeing like he knows that he's going to miss out on beautiful things and he can't justify it so he decides to leave and he's going to do his best to get back to civilization even though it's going to be like really treacherous and he might not make it we're kind of left seeing him maybe not make it but deciding it was worth it that's like the only part of the story that's like not in keeping with this read that i had on it which would be that the christian missionary decides to (laughs) forego the civilization and just kind of like deal with god on their own terms there wasn't like this takeaway that's where it kind of like fell apart for me this thing that I felt I was building to it ended up being just about sight itself it felt to me you know Mm, how can you turn away from this actual sense which is so profound and yeah I I don't think if you asked 100 people on the street if they'd give up their sight for a woman (laughs) they would do it you know (laughs) I mean, maybe some people would, but not if she was super hot. And that's what he's kind of saying, too. He's like, I won't even get to view what I've decided is like the most beautiful person to me and the reason for doing this. You know, it's just it doesn't make sense. So I don't know. What do you think the takeaway for this was supposed to be? Well, I I mean, your your reading sounds interesting. I like it. The kind of distinction between he's being the two-eyed man and his aphorism is about the one-eyed man. My takeaway, I mean, the thing that I remember the most, the thing that I, I've remembered for 30 years was there's a near the end. So the elders are talking about him. He said, uh, his brain is affected, said the blind doctor. The elders murmured assent. Now what affects it? Ah, said old Jacob. This, said the doctor, answering his own question. Those 
queer things that are called the eyes and which exist to make an agreeable soft oppression in the face are diseased in the case of Bogota, which is their nickname, not nickname, but their misunderstood name for him in such a way as to affect his brain. They are greatly distended. He has eyelashes and his eyelids move and consequently his brain is in a state of constant irritation and distraction. Yes, said old Jakob. Yes. And I think I may say with reasonable certainty that in order to cure him completely, all that we need to do is a simple and easy surgical operation, namely to remove those irritant bodies. And then he will be sane, then he will be perfectly sane and a quite admirable citizen. Thank heaven for science, said old Jacob, and went forth at once to tell Nunez of his happy hopes. That was the most memorable thing for me for this story. It was um, that the people in the village, the concept of sight was so alien to them that they, um, their, even their science, just the way they interpreted everything was, they could not, it's like, it's like almost Plato's allegory of the cave. You just can't see the light source that's casting the shadows. Um, they literally can't see. And then he comes to accept it. He says, all right, take my eyes. That's what it's going to take, right? And now the interesting thing is I didn't remember that he left the valley. And apparently yeah. there's... And like 30 years later, H.G. Wells rewrote the ending where he's up in the mountains and he spots a like a, a landslide that's about to happen. And he goes down to try to warn them. And nobody believes him, of course. But he grabs the, the girl that he likes and takes her out of the valley. The landslide destroys everything and they escape and go back and uh, live happily ever after, which I think is a much worse ending. Wow. But it's different, right? My memory of it was that he agreed to it and then just went through with the surgery and lived blind in the country of the blind after that. Obviously, that's not what did happen in the story. But um, so that's why my my takeaway is centered on the way in which the scientists interpret his what they see as his madness and interpret the cure for his madness. Not necessarily. I don't think I saw it as a story about him or as a story about them. Maybe okay. that makes sense. But I didn't think about it in terms of Christian missionaries or anything like that. I was just <laughs> <laughs> that was just my my immediate. That's that's how this uh, scenario felt familiar immediately. And then I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, oh m- maybe this is what I'm supposed to be kind of reading into, and then I couldn't get away from it. So yeah, I like that idea that you maybe focus more on the concept of being able to see. I mean, they think that his eyes can't see; they think his eyes are diseased. But you can like kind of take it one step further and think like seeing now metaphorically. Even even is what makes us all nuts, right? Like yeah. seeing the metaphorical landslide is why I have anxiety. <laughs> you know? I think that they were absolutely correct in their interpretation. Like those organs that they call the eyes were sending signals to his brain. And it were what it was those signals that caused him to behave in the ways he was behaving. They're absolutely correct about that. They were just interpreting it as a bad thing. Whereas he thought it was a good thing, right? Because yeah, he didn't know any other way. Like <laughs> yeah, exactly. The rewrite sounds like H.G. Wells would be open to my wanting to cut the intro <laughs> if he were to so drastically <laughs> change it 30 years later. But you're right. That is, um, it's it's totally different. It's totally different than a man deciding. Well, you know, in both, it sounds like he decides to leave. But in the second one, it sounds like he gets an opportunity to kind of reconsider and snag his lady. Yeah. I mean, he chooses death rather than no sight, basically. Like, he can't get out of this valley. It's kind of established that he's trapped there. And, you know, he's all beaten and bruised and just laying on the side of the mountain at the end there. Kind of enjoying the sight before he dies. Yeah. Enjoying the impulses his eyes give his brain in those final moments. But in the other version, he like goes back and it's almost like a cheat. Like he he doesn't have to pay any real consequences. He gets the girl 
and gets his eyes and everything. Right. If anything, it forces kind of the reader to land on a side of sight being advantageous. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) This one's kind of up in the air, right? Because he does have to make a really tough choice and he won't know if it's right until he's dead. Yeah. I mean, he makes his own choice, but yeah, it leaves it up in the air whether that was the right choice. If if another person in that situation would have made a different choice. Right. The other cool part about it is just with any kind of sci-fi or fantasy, but in any situation where you have to like envision something that like could maybe happen, but isn't actually happening, you get to do the really cool stuff that he's doing, which is imagine what it's like to then you can't see, but you have really heightened hearing. So we're familiar with this in the real world, right? We know that this is a thing uh, people with vision problems probably experience or do experience, you know, they've become more in tune with other senses and they get by just fine. But um, we haven't seen something where an entire civilization is blind. They don't know better. And they've managed to do some wonderful things. Like one of the first things that this guy notices when he comes out of the valley and like into their little world is all of the ways that irrigation has been set up. So right off the bat, H.G. Wells is showing us like this might seem like a disadvantaged society. However, they've figured it out. They are thriving. They're happy. And the result is that they don't even know that they're at a disadvantage because they've so efficiently kind of made up for this. He doesn't even like really introduce anything where he's like, you know, every once in a while, a cougar would come and kill 30 of them at once and nobody knew any better. You know, he doesn't even introduce like any kind of natural predator. He just introduces them as like fully functioning, if isolated, if ignorant of the outside world, like the way we in National Geographic see these uncontacted tribes and we're like oh man I'd love to show them my Nintendo 64 but they don't really need it because they probably have like everything they need they're clearly alive and they figured it out they're not at a disadvantage like I don't think there's a human civilization in this world by definition it's a civilization that's disadvantaged they've all like figured it out it's just not what the rest of us have figured out so I liked how we got to read all those cool things where we're seeing what this fully functioning society looks like with everyone being blind. It was cool to read that stuff. That's when I like sci-fi. You're like, okay, I'm going to create this character or this premise. And now I'm going to like sit here and think about it longer than I've ever thought about it. And all these cool little things come to mind where you can write these scenes and take things into account that like kind of surprise the reader. I mean, that that's part of the utopian tradition is like okay. describing what utopia or new Atlantis or we did a Charlotte Perkins Gilman, she wrote a utopian thing called Her Land, where women ruled. Oh, yeah. There's a whole bunch of this throughout the centuries. And they're always, they spend a lot of time kind of outlining what the society looks like. And it's kind of right. a, uh, usually they're polemic. You know, it's like, this is what we should do. This is how our society ought to be. Right. But this is an interesting one. You know, like I mentioned Gulliver's Travels before. He hasn't set up utopias exactly, but he's he's doing satire on, you know, contemporary, his contemporary society. And he's setting up little cultures that are organized in certain ways in order to make commentary on the way that England is behaving at that time. And then in the last one, there's the Wynnum and the Yahoos where he's kind of commenting on human beings and what kind of creatures they are. This one is is kind of a, uh, I don't think anyone would call this country the blind a utopia, 
we wouldn't all choose to go carve our eyes out and go live in a valley. But he, he's doing a similar thing where he's exploring what it would mean to live like that and um, how our assumptions are kind of contemporary assumptions about that kind of society, how they would impact or interact with the real society that would exist like that. So that aphorism that predates this story, I don't even know what the history of it is, but the one in the land country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. He, he probably heard that and said, is that true? I don't think that's right. I think it would be treated differently and um, just wrote a story to explore that. Like, What would a country of the blind look like? How would uh-huh. they interpret sighted person? They're not going to you know, fall in line and hail him as king immediately. What would happen for real if a sighted person landed in that valley? I'm not as familiar with what we're talking about in terms of this being a tradition of type of storytelling with the utopia, but this world, the country of the blind, is not it's not a utopia. Maybe no. we wouldn't describe it that way, except that I'm sure in all of these examples, the utopia or the world that we're discussing is one that has up until the point of the outsider visiting been totally fine. That's like the premise that we get, right? Yeah, I think so. You know, they've been operating, thinking everything's fine. And it's not until someone comes and tries to challenge those beliefs that, you know, you either have to actually reckon with it or there's just discord trying to get this outsider out. If anything, that's what a utopia feels like. Blissful ignorance. I think the the way that the original <laughs> ones were set up was like, I went to this faraway country as a traveler, as an explorer, and I discovered it. And it was marvelous. Let me tell you all about how it's marvels and why it was so great. And that's it. That's what it is. And then the idea is that you bring that back and Thomas More prints Utopia and says, we should make our world more like this. Okay, Francis okay. Bacon, his new Atlantis was all about scientific method and the uses of science to run society and stuff. And that's what he wanted, you know, as one of the early inventors, I guess, of science and the scientific outlook. So that's generally the idea. I think nowadays we've kind of shifted in like it's a lot of YA is like this. It's all dystopia. So it's like a world that that it, like you said is is functioning and it's going along just fine until something happens. But in these stories, we want it to crumble. We want it to fall apart because it's a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's not the kind of world we really want to live in. Yeah, it's interesting. So do you have a takeaway? I mean, the most immediate kind of takeaway is, you know, if you think about an aphorism, like, I don't know, a really dumb example would be like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. (laughs) And then um, you write a story where you demonstrate that that's not true. Right. Just taking an idea and kind of just playing with the uh, parameters and finding the stories and the undermining, you know, how to undermine it and twist it around. It's just fertile ground, I think. Yeah. I guess, I don't know, this is kind of the first I've heard of H.G. Wells being the guy that blends these two things as a groundbreaking genre. I don't know that this story is where he does that the most. uh. No, which is fine. But I like the idea of blending those two. That's like kind of the first time I've really heard it articulated that way. I guess I've always thought that anything that could potentially happen, but like kind of goes off the rails is sci-fi and anything that like we don't have a real example of is probably fantasy but (laughs) pretty expert uh description there but when you fuse the two together it gives you more leeway to explore things that are not scientifically accurate i know like actual sci-fi writers who are adamant that their work be believable by you know even experts in the field and you know there's history of early sci-fi fiction dictating everything down to like the way our actual spacesuits look when we landed on the moon like the government
government didn't come up with that as fiction writers, which is so cool. So there's this history of the genre being that in line with what's accurate and believable and then like taking it a step further. But I like this idea where you can blend fantasy. So it's like, yeah, we have blind people in the world. We know how they work and how they adapt. That's interesting. It's probably sci-fi to say that an entire civilization operates that way. And then it's complete fantasy to like introduce these other elements where, you know, they operate currently in the world and there's a valley that separates them and all of these weird things that come to pass. I don't know. It gives you a little more freedom to like explore something that you might not otherwise feel confident exploring. I could never write a story like the one that you were working on at one point, the generation ship thing, because mm-hmm. I just care so little for uh, what's actually possible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I would struggle with those confines. And that's not to say that I'm a fantasy writer at all, but I like the idea that, you know, you can blend these two and kind of give yourself permission to not write something that has to be accurate and to still find an audience obviously that craves that intersection that's cool yeah you make it just plausible enough <laughs> yeah to go into a fantastical direction with it that's just plausible enough would be like how anyone described any of my sci-fi to begin with so they'd be like well <laughs> well you're doing cli-fi you're running like those cli-fi pieces yeah exactly exactly that's probably a pretty good example of this intersection it's not really cli-fi it's just plausible enough it's sci-fi <laughs> and fantasy there you go i like that awesome All right. Well, thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.